All right, well, I hope you got some entertainment out of that. I know it's been said many times already today, but it's got to be said some more. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. We love you very much. Moms are amazing, aren't they? And it is absolutely right that we take a day to honor and celebrate our moms. Sorry, I'm trying to get my watch going here. Things you should have done before you got up on stage. Um, you know, mothers teach us so much about who God is in our lives, don't they? There are several scriptures in the Bible that compare the love of God to that of a mother. I know Scott kind of cheated and did the one that I was going to share. Oh. That one. Yeah. No. All right. Forget it. Forget it. It's okay. I did want to take a second here because these are my favorite mothers in the world. And I get to be here and celebrate with them. So especially to my mom and to my wife, happy Mother's Day. I love you very much. That's the benefit of being able to speak on stage. I can say things that you can't. Um, I did want to read a job description here, though, that I found online of a mom. The position, mother, mom, mama, mommy. The job description, long term, team players are needed for challenging permanent work in an often chaotic environment. Candidates must possess excellent communication and organizational skills and be willing to work variable hours, which will include evenings, weekends, and frequent 24-hour shifts on call. Some overnight travels required, including trips to primitive camping sites on rainy weekends and endless sports tournaments in faraway cities. Travel expenses will not be reimbursed. <laughs> Extensive courier duties also required. Responsibilities the rest of your life must be willing to be hated at least temporarily until someone needs $5. Must be willing to bite tongue repeatedly. Also, must possess the physical stamina of a pack mule and be able to go from zero to 60 in three seconds flat in case this time the screams from the backyard are not someone just crying wolf. Must be willing to face stimulating technical challenges such as small gadget repair, mysteriously sluggish toilets and stuck zippers. Must screen phone calls, maintain calendars, and coordinate production of multiple homework projects. Must have ability to plan and organize social gatherings for all clients of all ages and mental outlooks. Must be willing to be indispensable one minute and an embarrassment the next. Must handle assembly and the product safety testing of half a million cheap plastic toys and battery-operated devices. Must always hope for the best but be prepared for the worst. Must assume final, complete accountability for the quality of the end product. Responsibilities also include floor maintenance and janitorial work throughout the facility. <laughs> Possibility for advancement and promotion? Virtually none. <laughs> Your job is to remain the same, in the same position for years without complaining and constantly restraining and retraining and updating your skills so that those in charge can ultimately surpass you. Previous experience? None required, unfortunately. On-the-job training offered on a continually exhausting basis. Wages and compensation. Get this. You pay them. <laughs> Offering frequent raises and bonuses. A balloon payment is due when they turn 18 because of the assumption that college will help them become financially independent. When you die, you will give them whatever's left. The oddest thing about rever this reverse salary scheme is that you actually enjoy it and wish you could do more. 
benefits. While no health or dental insurance, no pension, no tuition reimbursement, no paid holidays, and no stock options are offered, this job supplies limitless opportunities for personal growth and free hugs for life if you play your cards right. That's a job description of a mother. For those that are maybe having a hard time connecting with the significance that mothers play in our lives, motherhood is an incredibly powerful and godly job to take up. Amen? And we all need to be thankful for our mothers today. And today we're going to look at uh, at some incredible mothers of the Bible. These are women that God chose for extraordinary purposes who teach us parts of God's character and are incredible examples for us to pay attention to. And what we'll see also is that Jesus repeats a lot of the same qualities that we get to see in these women. He says, this is how I want you to be and to live. But you know, there's a universal truth of the Bible that there's a theme of our sermon this morning. God loves to use the overlooked and the unlikely for some pretty extraordinary things. But specifically to teach us qualities about him and character traits that he desires for us to have. There's a scripture in 1 Corinthians 1. It says, But God chose what the world considers nonsense to put wise people to shame. God chose what the world considers weak to put what is strong to shame. And the point that he's trying to get across to us here is that God will use anybody he sees fit. And oftentimes, the people he chooses for the most powerful things are not the people that you and I would choose. So the benefit of this is there's hope for us. Because guess what? You and I are pretty unlikely candidates for special things. But because God believes in us, because God will use the insignificant and the unextraordinary, we get to be a part of something incredible with him. The title of our sermon here this morning is Chosen Instruments. We're going to say a prayer and we're going to dive right in. God, I do want to thank you so much for the opportunity that we get to come and be at your feet this Mother's Day. God, we are so fortunate that, that you've placed the, the, the mothers in our lives that you have, uh, but more importantly, God, how they teach us about who you are. I pray right now that you clear out the distractions, help us just to be attentive in your word, help us to be engaged with you and to participate in the worship here this afternoon together. We love you so much. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have three points for us here this, mo- or this morning. This afternoon, point number one is love. And through this, we're going to look at an amazing woman of the Bible. We're going to look at Ruth. So turn your Bible over to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 3. It says, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of the people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. 
May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even, even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Until they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred when, because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. We'll stop there. So this is a pretty happy picture for Mother's Day, right? Because you got, you got this pretty sad portrayal of life. It says that, that there's Naomi, she's got her husband, her, her sons, and life is going well. Her sons marry these two great women, and life seems to be just going everybody's way, and then everybody dies. Like, all the men in her life die. And back then, this was not a very easy place to be in. It wasn't like there was like career advancement opportunities for three widows that are all together. There wasn't even anybody to take care of them. They're in bad shape. And so at this point, they're having to decide for survival's sake, we got to get out of here. we got to go back to Bethlehem because that's the only place we're even going to have food. So Naomi decides to go back, but she wants her daughters-in-law to stay. And what's interesting, you see the exchange there, that first they're kind of like, no, we're going to come with you. And she's like, no, go back. And Orpha's like, all right, cool, I'm out. I'll see you later. Good luck. But what's powerful about this is the imagery. It says that Ruth, Ruth is there clinging to her mother-in-law, holding on to her. No, I'm not going to leave you. Naomi even tries to get her to leave. He's like, no, get out of here. Go, go with your sister-in-law. There's better opportunities there. But I love what she says specifically in verse 16 and 17. It says, don't urge me to go to leave you or to turn back from you. Where, I, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Her heart and her attitude is, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not leaving you to figure this out. I want to be with you through all of this. So Ruth leaves her home, her country, her family, all that she's known growing up in Moab to go with her, with her frustrated mother-in-law back to a place that's not hers. And when they get there, it's not like it's easy either. It says that when they get there, they cause a stir. Because here these two widows just show up together. 
And actually, because Ruth was a Moabitess, most scholars actually believe that she was really dark-skinned. So she stood out. The moment that she walked into town, people were looking at her. And the truth of the matter is, too, that Jews didn't like Moabites. They were, they were a reject country. They, they, were, they were ungodly people. They served all these, all these wrong gods and stuff like that. So the Jews severely looked down on Moabites. And here's this Moabite woman uh, without a husband, with her mother-in-law, walking into town. Oh, and by the way, it's not like her mother-in-law was in a really good place. She says, when she gets there, she goes, oh, is that Naomi? She says, no, that's not even my name anymore. Matter of fact, call me Mara, which means bitter. Bitter. Now, you think about traveling cross-country with somebody who you would want to hang out with. <laughs> somebody calling themselves bitter. It's, it's like Walter Matthau from Grumpy Old Men. Like, you just imagine, that's the entire experience. It's just, oh, it's just, everything's hot. Just, just, that's, that's where Naomi's at in life. She's, she's mourning. She's grieving. She's doing terrible willing to change her name because of how bitter and frustrated she is. Why would Ruth leave her family and everything that she knew to travel with her frustrated, cantankerous mother-in-law to a place that she wasn't really welcome in hopes that when she got there, they would find food and shelter? Does any of that add up? Does any of that make sense outside of love? Ruth's love for her mother-in-law surpassed logic. It, it, it surpassed, it, it's far beyond making sense. She could have been totally fine staying home in Moab where she was at, but she loved her mother-in-law and didn't want to leave her alone. You know, when I was a kid... We've been talking, uh, I've been talking with my parents as they've been out here for the weekend, and I was asking my mom, what are some of your definitive moments from raising me and my brother? And uh, one of the ones that comes to mind quite often as we're talking was when I was 12 and I started hitting the puberty line with vengeance. And uh, I don't even remember what happened. We, we, oh, I was, I was in trouble. That, that makes way more sense. I was in trouble for something that I had done. And I lost my mind, did not know how to deal with all of it. So I ran out of the house, jumped on my bike, pedaled up the street, threw my bike on the ground, and ran up this hill and hid behind a bush. Because logic. So there I am, just sitting there, just, life isn't fair, I'm 12 years old, and it's all, it's all falling apart. And, uh, and there my, my parents come running out looking for me and stuff, thinking I might have run away, and they see my bike, and like, all right, Jake, come, just come down, get over here. And it got all resolved and stuff, but that was the first real introduction that my parents were about to enter adolescence with me, and so I made it really easy for them. <laughs> but why would my mom put up with a prepubescent derelict that's eating a hormone gumbo like that? Because of love. Because there's something very unique about a mother's love. When you love someone unconditionally, you'll do things that don't make sense. You'll sacrifice to meet their needs over your own. Ruth's sacrificial love 
is totally blessed by God. The story doesn't even stop there. I love, if you've never read the book of Ruth before, it's a powerful book. But it says that, that she goes in there, uh, she overcomes her mother's attitude, her mother-in-law's attitudes, all that different stuff. God totally hooks her up. She gets this great husband. It's, it's a powerful story. And really, what Ruth's love teaches us here in the Old Testament is something that Jesus was constantly trying to get into the hearts and minds of his disciples. In John 13, 34, it says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, I know many of us know this scripture really well. But what Jesus is trying to get across here is, what I really want you to be known for is not how often you come to church on Sundays. It's not even how well you know your Bible. It's how well you love other people. It's how well you give your heart to the people that are in this room and the people outside of it. This is something that the disciples were constantly struggling with because they were always looking at each other and trying to size each other up. They looked down on other people because they weren't disciples of Jesus. All kinds of different things. But Jesus was the perfect example of love. Sacrificial through his life and in his death. But he's telling us here, he says, look, if you want to follow me, if you really want to know what's going to make life awesome, if you really want to be used by God then you have to learn how to love. This is how you need to be known. Lay down your life. Be willing to wash the feet of your betrayer. You know, I want to lift up real quick here. Uh, I'm really proud of Xavier Torres. Um, He is is an incredible young man. I've had the, the good pleasure of being in his life since we moved here. And the more I've gotten to know him, he has this deep desire to love people. He sacrifices in, in ways that most of us wouldn't even dream of it. And I think for many of us, he would be an incredible example of really how to love outside of ourselves and when it's inconvenient. But Jesus is looking for that kind of sacrificial love. He's looking for people that would be like Ruth. And even as people are pushing you away, he's saying, no, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to be close to you. Amen. Amen. Point number two is faith. And for this point, we're going to look at Rahab. Turn over to Joshua chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me. But I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax that she had laid out upon the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, 
I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og and the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God of hev- in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell where we are, what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down through, by a rope through the part of a window, for the house she lived in was a part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. We'll stop there. So the picture here is that, that the Israelites are getting ready to go into the promised land. They're, but the challenge was that God wasn't just giving them the promised land. There were people there. And so Joshua sends these spies in to go check out the city of Jericho. And what's interesting is that the first place that they go to is to Rahab the prostitute. Now, the Bible makes it very clear what her profession was. Matter of fact, Nowhere in the Bible is she mentioned without the words, the prostitute. If you look it up in Hebrews, because she's mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, even Rahab, the prostitute. God wants us to be very clear about what she did for a living. So now, why they went here exactly, we don't really know. Why did the king think that that's where they would go when they first got to the city? We don't really know. But either way, This was a woman that we would not look at as a woman of faith, probably. That if we thought of people doing any kind of profession on the earth, you probably wouldn't say Rahab the prostitute is going to be a really faithful woman. But what she does here is she puts her life on the line for foreigners who are looking to destroy her city. Like, let that sink in for a second. Your enemies coming to stay with you to destroy your city and you're going to stick out your neck for them. And look at specifically what she says in verse 9. I know the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of her or because of you. This woman has incredible faith. More than even the Israelites did. The Israelites were constantly struggling with trusting God that he was working with them. Even though they witnessed Korah getting swallowed up by the land. They witnessed the Red Sea being parted. The Jordan River being parted. Manna falling from heaven. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And they questioned God every single turn. This woman heard a story about a foreign God that wasn't hers and said, this is the real deal. This is worth sticking my neck out for. This God is the real deal. All she had to do was hear of the stories of what God has done and her heart changed. 
Matter of fact, so much so that when the time came, when, when she was like, okay, I want to join what you guys are doing, but you've got to swear to me by your God. I don't care about your word. But I trust the power of your God. And I know that you're not going to play games with this. So swear to me by your God that you're going to take care of my family. What's again powerful about this is that Jesus was always struggling to help people to have faith. I know Scott preached a great sermon last week talking about stepping out of the boat and being boat holders and water walkers. But Jesus was always trying to stretch the faith of his disciples to help them to be more faithful, to see that they could do more with him than they realized. But what's interesting is that in the the Bible, there was only a couple times that Jesus was ever amazed by something. And every time, it it was because of faith. Either he was amazed by their lack of faith or he was amazed by their great faith. I want to show you a quick scripture in Matthew 8.10. It says, When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This is a Roman centurion who came to Jesus and said, Look, my servant is sick. If you, heal, if you just say the word, he'll be healed. Don't even come back to my house. You're too busy for, these, for this stuff. Just say the word and he's going to be healed. Jesus looked at this and he said, man, I've never seen faith like that. What's powerful about this is that he's in the same situation that Rahab was. This isn't her God. This is somebody else. But when he saw, when he witnessed, when he opened his eyes to seeing what God, what Jesus was doing, he said, yeah, this guy's got it. I can believe in something beyond myself. Because of him. You think of how many times your faith gets challenged. Especially for those of you that have maybe been Christians for many years. When I think about this for myself, I have witnessed so many miracles in my life. So many miracles. And yet I'm constantly questioning what God is doing. Here's this foreign prostitute that here's a story about a God and was willing to lay her life down for it. That's faith worth imitating. That's why she gets mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 and none of these guys do. Last but not least, point number three, we're going to talk about forgiveness. And for forgiveness, we're going to look at Bathsheba. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Everybody with me? Starting in verse 11, it says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, you will rest with your ancestors. I will raise up for you an offering to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the only one I will build a house for my name, that will, that will build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. We'll stop there. So what we just read here is actually, it's a promise that God was making to King David. And he was saying, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use your family for some powerful things. Matter of fact, your, your kingdom, the, the, the bloodline of you is going to last forever. It's going to sit on the throne. Your son is going to build my temple. But then further on, he's actually making some prophecies about, about Jesus coming in the future. But, but God is basically saying here, look, I, I'm going to do something amazing through your family. I mean, think about this for a second, parents. How would you feel if God was making this promise to you? If God said, I'm going to use your bloodline, your children, for something spectacular. I have a plan so far beyond even just this generation through you and your family. How would you feel? The honor, the reverence, the awe. Now, the better question for us here today is, who would you expect that mother to be? Who would you expect the mother to fulfill this prophecy to be? And at this point, David has at least six wives. This is not a good example. We don't really talk about that a whole lot in the Old Testament, but a lot of the Old Testament guys were struggling when it came to marriage. Let's just be real. Okay? And anytime somebody had multiple wives, it was always a bad idea. It never worked out well. But David had some incredible wives. He had Michal, the princess, the daughter of Saul, was one of his wives. Maka, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur, you know, because of the whole political climate stuff, marrying for, for political relationships. But then he had Abigail. Now, of all David's wives, Abigail was an incredible woman. You know, he married her not even because there was a political gain to be had. He just was impressed with her. She was such an incredible woman. He's like, no, i got to marry that one. That's, yeah, for sure. You, you're coming with me. Twenty years after this prophecy gets given to David, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. It's arguably one of the most grievous sins in the whole Bible. I would dare say it's the, it's the most grievous. Sees this woman bathing on the roof, decides to figure out who she is, finds out it's the wife of one of his closest friends and confidants, Uriah. Instead of leaving her alone, he decides to call for her and he sleeps with her. Gets her pregnant, and then in the middle of all that, tries to cover it up. And then when he realizes that his plan's not going to work, he has the husband killed in battle to cover his sin. Now the truth of the matter is, we don't really know anything else about Bathsheba other than that story. Like if I said that name and you knew who she was, you immediately probably thought of what I just mentioned. But there's other questions that go along with this. How willing of a participant was she in all of it? Did she really want this or was this, this her king called her? She didn't have a choice in the matter. Not only that, she suffered some incredible loss because of this. 
Her husband was killed in battle. As, as, as a response to David's sin, God said, your firstborn's not going to make it. Your firstborn's going to die. So she had to watch the death of her husband and her firstborn child because of David and her sin. And you know the only other thing that we know about her biblically? She became the mother of Solomon. She became the mother of the son that would fulfill this promise. God decided out of all of David's wives, incredible as they might be, said, you know what? The adulteress. That's the one who's going to have the son that I want. Now, why would God do that? What does this tell us about him? What is powerful about this story is this explains something about the power of God's forgiveness that I think we miss way easily. We are not defined by our sin to God. We are not defined by our worst mistakes. God could have just said, you know, Bathsheba, that's the, we're just going to try to forget about her. David, I know you messed up. You know, we're going to move past it and stuff. You guys can have a great life. But no, God said she's going to be the one that's going to fulfill the prophecy. Even as big and a grievous sin as this one, this could be the, the single most defining thing, but it's not what God sees. He's always looking at a bigger picture. Amen? There is something so incredibly profound about God's forgiveness and grace in this story. God would be willing to look past the sins of David, past the sins of Bathsheba, and to make Solomon one of the most successful kings in all of human history. Historians actually argue that he might have amassed more wealth and had a better army than any king of all time. That was the adulteress's son. Oh yeah, and he would be the, you know, bloodline of Jesus. But I want you to think about you at your worst moment. The thing or maybe the things that you feel the most ashamed of in your life. Because what this story communicates to us is that God's forgiveness is greater than that. God isn't finished with you yet. Okay, that should get an amen. God is not finished with you yet, church. When I think about all the things I could be known for, the impurity, the deceit, the backstabbing, the lack of love and loyalty that I've shown to people, There are so many moments in my life that I look back on with some deep sorrow and regret. But because of God's love and forgiveness for us, we get to see this fulfilled in such a perfect way through Jesus. In Luke 23, 34, Jesus, as he's looking down on the people that crucified him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. I don't know how you feel when you read that scripture, but every time I read that scripture, I get this picture of Jesus looking down on this cross at me. My worst moment, 
saying, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's, capable, what, he's, what he's doing. He doesn't know the damage that he's causing to himself and people around him. Father, forgive him. Because there's something better that I have in store for him. The story of the cross and the story of Bathsheba is that he's willing to forgive any of us in the depths of any sin and still use us to be a part of a bigger story. And as we wrap up here, all three of these women would have been ostracized. If they, if they came into church right now, we probably would have taken notice. But God chose these unlikely women for something far more spectacular. The stories by themselves, the women that they were, the moments that they had in the Bible, there are some powerful moments for us to reflect on in God's character. But Matthew actually shows us a bigger part of the song that he was using these instruments for. In Matthew chapter 1, when he's explaining the, the lineage of Jesus, he mentions, he says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the, mother, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. These three women, a Moabitess, an adulteress, and a prostitute, are the women that God chose specifically to be the great-grandmothers of the Messiah. Let that sink in for a second. The women that we might have looked at when they walked through the door and we would have felt weird about them even being here. God said, these women, they're going to lead to my son. These women, the ones, the ones that you would overlook, the ones that you would miss in service, the ones that you might feel weird about even approaching, these women are going to be my chosen instruments to carry the blood of my son. But not only that, this all came together in the apex of motherhood when God chose a faithful teenage girl for the incredible, unbelievable task of bearing and raising the Son of God. Mary was an, was an amazing woman. We could have spent an entire sermon just talking about her. But I want to leave you with is, is, is a thought here. Mary had to raise the Messiah. Jesus didn't come out of the womb ready to go. He wasn't just ready to carry the cross. He wasn't just ready to save the world. He had to be raised by a mother. As a matter of fact, actually, we don't know exactly when, but somewhere, down, somewhere along the lines, Joseph, his father, died. And Mary was a single mom. Amen? Shout out to all the single moms out there in the room. But Mary was a single mother. Raising the Messiah by herself. And what I imagine, if you'd see it in your mind's eye, is Mary sitting with Jesus as a child, telling him the story of his great-grandmother Ruth, his great-grandmother Bathsheba, and how God forgave her and saved her from the darkness of her sin. And finally, his great-grandmother Rahab, the prostitute, you think about conversations as a parent you would try to avoid about your family history? 
And there's Mary sitting with little Jesus. Let me tell you about your great-grandmother Rahab. This woman who belonged to a shameful people and a shameful profession, but had more faith than most of God's own people, that God would spare her from destruction and bring her into the family. I want you to consider this. Maybe these women is where Jesus first started to learn about love, forgiveness, and faith. Moms, I hope you feel valued today. I hope you feel honored and lifted up. For everyone in here, I don't know what you see when you think about yourself in the eyes of God. You may not feel worthy, or you may feel that you're beyond saving. But God chose these unlikely women. The love of of a foreigner, the faith of a prostitute, and forgiving an adulteress to pave the way for the Messiah. Where would we be? I want you to consider this last thought. Where would we be as disciples of Jesus, as a church, if we loved like Ruth? If we had faith like Rahab? If we walked in grace and forgiveness like Bathsheba? Imagine what he could do with you and with us. We're going to take communion here together. And as we take communion together, I want to encourage you to even think about the words that Jesus expressed on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because all this, all these stories were meant to lead us to our story and where we fit in the eyes of God. And God decided to look at each one of us in here, look past the darkest moments of our lives and say they're worth saving. They're worth sending my son. And for that reason, we need to celebrate, we need to be grateful for what we get to have here with God. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer as we take communion. God, I want to thank you so much for the chance that we have right now just to reflect on how incredible you really are, God. That your love so far surpasses anything we could ever comprehend or deserve. Thank you for using these three incredible women for such an extraordinary purpose. Thank you for what that teaches us about who you are, but thank you also for what that teaches us about our value to you. God, that it's, it's, it's the examples of these three women and the stories that they share is part of what tells us that, that we were worth dying for. And thank you so much for sending Jesus. We love you so much. See your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.